After reciting the Tashahud, Ta'awuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih the Fifth, Ayyadullah Ta'ala bin Nisrih Al-Aziz stated, The accounts from the life of Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala were being narrated. With regards to the establishment of the department for qaza, i.e. arbitration, it is mentioned in a narration that Hazrat Umar formally established a department for qaza. The courts were established in all the provinces and the qazis, i.e. the judges, were also appointed. Furthermore, Hazrat Umar legislated various injunctions related to the system of qaza and the qazis, i.e. the judges, were appointed from amongst those who held expertise in the field of fiqh, i.e. jurisprudence. However, Hazrat Umar would not consider this to be enough. In fact, he would also test them and would set a substantial amount for their salaries, lest they issued a wrong decision. Hazrat Umar would appoint the Qazis, i.e. the judges from among the affluent and honourable people, so that they would not become overawed by anyone when issuing their verdicts. Hazrat Umar would always instruct to uphold equality and justice in the courts. On one occasion, Hazrat Umar had a disagreement with Hazrat Ubay bin Kaab over something. Subsequently, Hazrat Ubay took his case to the court of Hazrat Zaid bin Sabit. Zaid invited Hazrat Umar and Ubay and showed great respect to Hazrat Umar. But upon this, Hazrat Umar stated that this is the first injustice you have committed. And after saying this, he went and sat next to Ubay. In other words, he stated that they were both present in the capacity of two equal parties in a case and therefore should be considered as such and be given a seat next to each other and it should not be the case that he be shown respect in a preferential manner. Hazrat Muslim Ta'ala has related this incident and states that on one occasion the second Khalifa had a disagreement with Ubay bin Kaab over something. The matter was presented before a judge and he called Hazrat Umar Ta'ala
The judge called Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And since he was the Khalifa of the time, the judge gave his seat as a mark of respect. Hazrat Umar, however, went and sat next to the opposing party in the case and said to the judge that this is the first injustice you have committed because at this moment in time there should be no distinction drawn between me and the other party. Hazrat Umar also established the department of iftar by issuing edicts. And in order to make people aware of the laws of the Sharia, he established the department of iftar. Hazrat Umar appointed a few companions for this and stated that no one should seek a fatwa, i.e. an edict, from anyone other than them. Among those who were permitted to give the fatwa were Hazrat Ali, Hazrat Usman, Hazrat Muaz bin Jabal, Hazrat Abdul Rahman bin Auf, Hazrat Ubay bin Kaab, Hazrat Zaid bin Sabit, Hazrat Abu Huraira, and Hazrat Abu Darda radiallahu anhum. Apart from them, if anyone else issued a fatwa, they would be prohibited by Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And every so often, Hazrat Umar would also assess these various muftis. In relation to this, Hazrat Muslim Aud radiallahu ta'ala anhu states, that one of the departments was in relation to issuing religious edicts. After the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, during the era of the Khulafa, there was a rule that not everyone was authorized to issue a religious edict. Hazrat Umar took great caution in this regard, so much so that a companion, who was perhaps Abdullah bin Mas'ud and was a religious scholar and an esteemed individual, once informed the people of a matter, and this was also brought to the attention of Hazrat Umar. When Hazrat Umar came to know of this, he immediately questioned him and asked, that are you the Amir, are you the leader, or has the Amir appointed you to issue an edict as you please? The fact of the matter is that if everyone is authorized to issue edicts, it can cause many problems and it can become a source of great trial for the public. And the reason for this is that at times there are two different edicts regarding the same matter and both are correct. In other words, the fatwa or the edict is given according to the circumstances and if one delves into the details of the matter, then there is some flexibility, and thereby, depending on the situation, there will be a different edict given. However, this becomes difficult to understand for the general public as to how both edicts can be deemed correct, and as such, they fall into trial. Similarly, Hazrat Umar also established a police department. In order to uphold the peace in the land, a police department was established by Hazrat Umar, And this department was given the authority over accountability, maintaining peace and security, and overseeing matters related to the marketplace, etc. In other words, to oversee whether or not people were correctly adhering to the guidelines, and also to help people receive their due rights if they were being usurped, and to oversee other official matters until they reached the judge.
Thus, this department was given authority to oversee matters related to the safety and peace of society and also matters related to the marketplace. Hazrat Umar also established formal prisons and prior to this there was no concept of prisons as such. The criminals would also receive severe punishments. Hazrat Umar also established the treasury. Prior to the era of Hazrat Umar whatever wealth was received would be immediately distributed. During the time of Hazrat Abu Bakr a house was purchased and dedicated for the treasury. However, this remained closed as whatever wealth was received would immediately be distributed. In the 15th year after Hijrah, an amount of 500,000 was received from Bahrain and upon this Hazrat Umar consulted the companions as to what should be done with it. One suggestion was that in Syria they have a treasury. Hazrat Umar liked this suggestion and laid the foundation for a treasury in Medina. And Hazrat Abdullah bin Arkam was appointed as the supervisor of the treasury. Later, treasuries were established outside of Medina as well in the headquarters of all the other provinces. Hazrat Umar would construct buildings within a limited budget. However, he would build extremely strong and magnificent buildings for the treasuries. Later, he also appointed security guards for the treasuries and a formal system of security was established for this. Hazrat Umar would personally safeguard the money of the treasury. An incident is recorded in history that a freed slave of Hazrat Usman bin Affan relates that it was extremely hot one day and he was accompanying Hazrat Usman and they were with his cattle at a place called Aliyah. Aliyah is a valley at a distance of four to eight miles from Medina in the direction of Najd. And Hazrat Usman saw a man walking and he was taking two young camels along with him. Hazrat Usman saw that a man was walking and was taking two young camels along with him. And upon seeing this, Hazrat Usman asked, What is the matter with that person? If he stayed in Medina and departed after the weather had cooled, it would have been better for him. When that man approached near, the assistant of Hazrat Usman relates that Hazrat Usman said to me that find out as to who this is. I replied by saying it is a man draped in a cloak who is pulling two young camels. When the man drew nearer, Hazrat Usman again asked that who is this person? Upon seeing, I realized that it was Hazrat Umar bin al-Khattab and I submitted that it is Amir al-Mu'mineen, the leader of the faithful. Hazrat Usman stood up and peered out from the door when a searing gust of hot air caused him to withdraw his head. But he quickly turned in the direction of Hazrat Umar and submitted, that what has compelled you to leave your home at this hour? Hazrat Umar explained that these two camels were left behind from among the camels for sadqa, i.e. charity, and all other camels had been shepherded away. And I wanted to take them to the pastures for fear that they may get lost, and thus Allah would hold me accountable for them. Hazrat Usman radiallahu stated that, O Amirul Mu'mineen, please come under the shade and have a drink of water, for we are present here to serve you. In other words, we will arrange for them to be sent. But Hazrat Umar replied that return and rest and be seated in your shade. The freed slave of Hazrat Usman continued that I submitted that we have that which is adequate for you also. But Hazrat Umar replied to this and said, return to your shade. Following this, Hazrat Umar departed. 
Hazrat Usman then stated that whosoever desires to observe someone who is strong and trustworthy, then he should look to this man. In another narration, it is recorded that Umar bin Nafi narrates from Abu Bakr Isa that I accompanied Hazrat Umar bin Khattab, Hazrat Usman bin Affan, and Hazrat Ali bin Abi Talib when charity was being collected. At the time, Hazrat Usman was sat under a shade whilst Hazrat Ali stood near him and repeated all the things Hazrat Umar was stating. Hazrat Umar, undeterred by the severe heat of day, stood in the sun with two black cloaks. One was used as a lower garment and the other as a head covering. And he was inspecting and noting down the age and the colour of the camels that had been donated for charity. Hazrat Ali then said to Hazrat Usman that have you heard of the saying of the daughter of Shu'ib in Allah's book? Inna khaira man amin. That is, the best man you can hire is the one who is strong and trustworthy. After this, Hazrat Ali then indicated towards Hazrat Umar and said that indeed he is very strong and a trustworthy man. Hazrat Muslim narrates an incident related to this regarding Hazrat Umar He writes that Hazrat Usman recounts that I was once seated in my quarters and the heat was so severe that it was difficult to even muster the strength to open the door. In the meantime, one of my assistants told me that there was a man walking outside in the scorching heat. I moved the curtains to find a man whose face was burnt by the intense heat. I replied saying that he must be a traveller. But just a few moments later, that man arrived closer to my quarters, and I realised that it was Hazrat Umar anhu. Upon seeing him, I became concerned and went outside and asked, that where are you going at this time in this intense heat? Hazrat Umar replied that a camel from the treasury has been lost and I am out searching for it. This is the incident of camel that was lost and it was mentioned once before as well. Hazrat Umar was once distributing wealth from the treasury when his daughter came and took a dirham. Hazrat Umar stood to retrieve it from her, which caused his cloak to dangle from one shoulder. Upon seeing this, the girl raced home, crying, and put the dirham in her mouth. Hazrat Umar used his finger to remove the dirham from her mouth and then returned it to the treasury. Thereafter, he stated that, O people, Umar and his family, whether closely related or distantly, have the same rights as any Muslim does and nothing more. There is also another narration as that Abu Musa once donated a broom to the treasury and received a dirham. A young child of Hazrat Umar passed by and Abu Musa gave that dirham to the child. Hazrat Umar saw the dirham in the child's hand and asked about it and the child informed him that he received it from Abu Musa. After learning that the dirham had come from the treasury, Hazrat Umar stated that, O Abu Musa, did you not find anyone amongst the dwellers of Medina more in need than the household of Umar? And did you desire that none should be left out from the Ummah of Muhammad but that they should seek recompense from us for this wrong? Hazrat Umar then returned the dirham to the treasury.
Then in terms of general advancements, it is recorded that Hazrat Umar ta'ala did many things for the betterment and progression of the general public. For improvements in agriculture and sourcing water, Hazrat Umar ta'ala arranged for canals to be dug, of which some instances are as follows. There was the Abu Musa Canal, which was a nine-mile-long canal, which brought water from the Tigris River to Basra. Then there was Makal Canal, which was also dug from the Tigris. And then the Amir al-Mu'mineen Canal. This was dug under the orders of Hazrat Umar to join the Nile to the Red Sea. During the famine in 18 Hijri, Hazrat Umar wrote to Hazrat Amr bin Alas to send aid. There was a delay in the aid reaching Medina due to the great distance from Egypt. Hazrat Umar sent for Amr and said to him that if the Nile was dug up to the sea, then Arabia would never suffer from a famine again. When Amr returned, as he was the governor of that area, he dug a canal from Fastat up to the Red Sea, through which ships could reach the port of Jeddah close to Medina. This canal was 29 miles long and was prepared within six months. Hazrat Amr bin Alas intended to connect the Red Sea with the Mediterranean Sea and he intended to dig a canal from Farma where the distance between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea was only 70 miles and thereby connect the two rivers. Farma was a coastal city of Egypt. However, Hazrat Umar was worried that the pilgrims would be looted by the Greeks and therefore did not approve of it. If Amr bin Alas was granted permission, and the Suez Canal, which was built later, would have been created by the Arabs. Various buildings were built. Hazrat Umar built various buildings for the ease of the people. These included mosques, courts, military cantonments, barracks, offices for infrastructure of the country, roads, bridges, guest houses, watch posts, inns, etc. Hazrat Umar also constructed springs and inns at every manzil between Mecca and Medina and he created watch posts as well. In other words, he ensured for security arrangements and also places of rest such as hotels and inns, etc. Then regarding the development of cities, it is stated that during the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar many new cities were inhabited. And whilst populating these cities, Hazrat Umar kept the security and economic advantages in mind. The locations of these cities demonstrated Hazrat Umar command and meticulous planning in the art of war, principles of politics and development. These cities were beneficial in both times of war and peace times. Hazrat Umar would ensure that the cities were constructed in those Arab lands which bordered non-Arab lands in order to prevent a sudden attack. The location of these cities was such that was suited to the Arabs. One side of these cities would be from among the Arab lands and served as pasture grounds another side would be next to such non-Arab lands that consisted of lush green vegetation where fruits, grain and other things were grown, i.e. lands that were used for agriculture. And when constructing cities, Hazrat Umar would ensure that a river or sea does not flow in the middle of it. 
Hazrat Umar founded the cities of Basra, Kufa and Fustat. Hazrat Umar established these cities on strong and correct foundations and he ensured that the roads and pathways were spacious and wide and were exceptionally organized. Thus, this outlook demonstrated that Hazrat Umar was an expert in this field and unique in this regard. Similarly, Hazrat Umar established a system for the army. Hazrat Umar organized the structure for the military and he also ensured for registries to be made according to their ranks and also fixed their salaries. Hazrat Umar divided the army into two parts, one part that would regularly partake in battle and the second part consisted of volunteers who would be called upon in time of need. Furthermore, Hazrat Umar was extremely mindful of the training of the army and had issued strict orders that in occupied territories the army personnel would not be involved in trade or agriculture. The army serving in the occupied territories were not to involve themselves in any trade or agriculture business because if they did, there was a danger that they would lose their military prowess and skills. However, these days we see that even in Muslim countries as well, the army personnel are involved in trade and businesses. In fact, regarding one country it is said that previously when obtaining commission, the officers would focus their attention to their relevant field of expertise. But now, as soon as an officer receives their commission, they check where a new development or a defence colony is being made, where they can secure an allotment for themselves. And for this reason, their military prowess and skills are diminishing. Furthermore, it is mentioned that when attacking countries that had hotter and colder weathers, the climate would be taken into account, so that the army remain healthy and active, and their health not be adversely affected. Hazrat Umar had issued strict orders for every person in the army to know swimming, and also to know how to use a bow and arrow, and be able to walk barefoot. And after every four months, the soldiers were permitted to return home to their families and were given leave. And in order to make them strong and tough, Hazrat Umar ordered that the army personnel were not to use the stirrups when mounting on their horse. In other words, they were ordered not to put their feet in the stirrup in order to mount the horse. In fact, they had to jump onto the horse. They were also ordered to abstain from wearing soft clothes, avoid the sun and not to shower in hammams, as this would incline them towards ease and comforts. In the spring season, Hazrat Umar would order the army to be sent to lush green areas and the atmosphere and climate would be taken into account when building the army barracks, as this was important that the army be sent to lush green areas so that they would remain in good health owing to the clean atmosphere there. Hazrat Umar would be mindful of the environment and climate around them. He also constructed military cantonments in every province and a military base was established in all the main areas such as Medina, Kufa, Basra, Mosul, Fustat, 
Damascus, Homs, Jordan and Palestine. And there would always be an army on duty there. And every four months the soldiers would be granted leave. And at all times these military bases contained 4,000 horses which were looked after. And the legs of the horses were branded with the words Jaishun fi sabilillah, meaning army in the way of Allah. During the Khilafat of Hazrat Umar the Islamic army developed new implements of war in order to aid their progress. These included implements to break down fortresses such as catapults and the Baba. The Baba was that weapon used to break down and destroy forts and people would be seated inside it and would be used to make holes in the walls of the fort in order to make them collapse. Under the Islamic government, the non-Muslims were granted senior positions and it was not the case that only Muslims were given these posts. In fact, non-Muslims and non-Arabs also held key positions. Hazrat Muslim radiallahu states that during the time of the Khulafa of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, despite the fact that various nations under the Islamic rule were not all living peacefully, but they were still granted their rights. Alama Shibli in relation to this writes that Hazrat Umar expanded the structure of the military in a way that there was no distinction between any nationality nor was there religious bias. The part of the army which consisted of volunteers had thousands of majusis, in other words those who worshipped the fire or the sun. And they were included as part of the army and were given the same salaries as the Muslims. The Majusis were also part of the administration of the army as well. Similarly, he writes that Greek and Romans were part of the army and 500 of the soldiers were present at the time of the conquest of Egypt. Today in Pakistan they say that Ahmadis should be removed from the army as it is a sensitive position. Whereas, if one studies history, they will find that Ahmadi army officers have offered the most sacrifices for Pakistan. But in any case, these are their own schemes. Then with regards to Hazrat Umar it is stated that when Amr bin Alas developed the city of Fustat, he divided it up in quarters. And this fair treatment was also extended to the Jews and during the conquest of Egypt, a thousand Jews were present in the Islamic army. Similarly, it is proven from history that people belonging to other nations were appointed as officers in the army. People belonging to other nations were even appointed as officers in times of war. In the time of Hazrat Umar the Iranians were appointed as officers in the army and their names are mentioned in history. Alama Shibli has mentioned the names of six officers. They are Siyar, Husru, Shehriyar, Shirviya, Shahrviya and Afrodin. These officers would be paid from the official treasury and their names were also on the payroll. And after the four Khulafa, it is mentioned in history that in the time of Hazrat Muawiyah, a Christian by the name of Ibn Asal was the finance minister. The reference which I have just read about Afruddin was stated by Hazrat Muslim in Tafsir Kabir, 
wherein he cited a reference of Alama Shibli and in the book Al-Faruq, the same name is written. However, in Arabic books, the name is written as Afrozin with the letter Zal as opposed to the letter Dal. Nonetheless, there is a minor difference of Zal and Dal, but as people begin to dispute over such matters, for this reason I have given this explanation. Similarly, the market control and price control was implemented as well and Islam prohibited dropping prices through unlawful means and this was enforced by Hazrat Umar radiallahu With regards to the prohibition of dropping the prices Hazrat Muslim radiallahu states that Islam does not permit that prices be forced down by unlawful means because forcing down prices is also an unlawful way of earning money because owing to this, powerful traders would force the smaller traders to sell their commodities at a lower price and would succeed in making them bankrupt. There is an incident in the time of Hazrat Umar that while inspecting the market, he came across a trader from outside of Medina who was selling dried grapes at such low prices that local producers and traders could not compete with. Hazrat Umar ordered the man to remove his produce from the market or to sell it at the price other traders were selling in Medina. The traders of Medina were not asking for an excessive price, rather it was a reasonable price in line with their expenditure. Hazrat Umar ordered for him to sell it for the same price and when asked for the reason of this order, Hazrat Umar replied, that without such an order, the local merchants would have suffered a loss even though they were not charging an undue price. It is true that some companions questioned the validity of this order in view of the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that market prices should not be interfered with. However, their objection was not correct since the prohibition against the state intervention in market prices issued by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, pertained to interference in the principles of supply and demand. The government should avoid undue interference as it is harmful. This is because the market's supply and demand adjusts itself and it would provide no benefit to consumers while inflicting serious losses upon the traders if this was not permitted. However, assigning prices is permitted. Hazrat Muslim has explained this in detail in another place as follows that among the rights of the citizens is that the trade and dealings should not be adversely impacted. We find that Islam has not overlooked this right and therefore has prohibited one from increasing the market price and selling at a higher price. Likewise, it has also prohibited one from significantly reducing the prices in order to cause loss to others and making their businesses fail. Thus, it is wrong to bring the prices down in order to see off competition. Once a trader was selling grapes in Medina at such a price, which other traders could not afford to sell at, Hazrat Umar was walking by at the time and admonished the trader because owing to this act of his, the other traders were suffering loss. Thus, Islam has prohibited one from selling products at an extremely high price and also from significantly reducing the prices so that neither the traders are faced with loss and nor the members of the public.
Then in relation to organizing the education system, it is mentioned that Hazrat Umar radiallahu greatly improved the education system. He established schools in all the countries under the Muslim rule, wherein the Holy Quran, Hadith and Fiqh were taught, and the companions, who were great scholars, were appointed as teachers and for overseeing the moral training, and a salary was also fixed for those who were appointed as teachers. Then with regards to how the Hijri calendar was established, there is a narration of Sahih Bukhari which states that Hazrat Sal bin Saad reported that the companions did not start the calendar from the time of the advent of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and nor from his demise. In fact, they started the calendar from when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, arrived in Medina. In other words, after his migration. The commentator of Bukhari, Alama ibn Hajar Asqalani states that according to Imam Suheli, the companions decided to start the calendar from the migration of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, based on the following words of Allah the Almighty, La masjidun usisa ala taqwa min awwal yawmin. That is, a mosque which was founded on piety from the very first day. Thus, the meaning of from the very first day would be the day the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions arrived in Medina. However, Allah has the best of knowledge. There are various narrations with regards to why there was a need to start the Hijri calendar. Hazrat Abu Musa wrote to Hazrat Umar and stated that they would receive letters from him but it did not have any date on them. Upon this, Hazrat Umar gathered the people to seek consultation on this. Allama ibn Hajar states that in Bukhari, the book of etiquettes, Hakim has related from Mamun bin Mehran that once a check was presented to Hazrat Umar which was only valid until Shaban. Upon this, Hazrat Umar stated that which Shaban does this refer to? The one that has passed or the one that we are currently passing through or the one to come? Following this, Hazrat Umar stated that they should form a calendar which everyone could remember. Ibn Sirin relates that once a person came from Yemen and mentioned that he had observed that in Yemen they had something which they referred to as a calendar and they wrote down the particular year and the month. Upon this, Hazrat Umar stated that this was an excellent method and they should write it down like that as well. There are various narrations in regards to who started the Hijri calendar According to one of the narrations, it was the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who instructed to note down the dates, and this began from the month of Rabiul Awal. Hakim has written in his book Al-Aqlil that it has been narrated by Imam Shahab Zuhri. That is, that when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, arrived in Medina, he instructed for the dates to be noted down, and this began from the month of Rabiul Awal. However, Alama ibn Hajar states that this narration is Muazzal, which means that it has two or more narrators missing one after the other in its chain of narrators. According to another narration, a calendar began to be formally written down after the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, migrated to Medina, However, the more commonly known narration is contrary to these aforementioned narrations and states that the Hijri calendar started from the time of Hazrat Umar anhu. The author of Subulul Huda wa Rishad fi Sirat Khair al-Ibad, Muhammad bin Yusuf Sahli states that Ibn Salah states that he read in the book Ash-Shurud 
by Abu Tahir Mahmish that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, instructed for the dates to be written down because when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, intended to send letters to the Christians in Najran, he instructed Hazrat Ali radiallahu ta'ala to write Bikhamsim min al-Hijrah, that is five years after the Hijrah. Thus, in light of this, it was the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who was the first to write down the dates, and Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala followed this practice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Then, according to another narration, it was Hazrat Yalla bin Umayyah who started the practice of writing down the dates. And Imam Ahmad has narrated this, but the chain of narrators is broken between Umar and Yala. Then, according to the third narration, which is more commonly known, the Hijri calendar began in the era of Hazrat Umar radiallahu khilafat. There are further details mentioned in relation to why the Hijri calendar began from the year of migration. When Hazrat Umar sought consultation with regards to forming a yearly calendar, one of the suggestions was that it should start from the year of the Holy Prophet's birth. Another suggestion was that it should start from the year he was commissioned as a prophet. And the third suggestion was that it should start from the year in which the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, passed away. And the fourth suggestion was that it should start from the year in which the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, migrated to Medina. It was ultimately decided to start from the year of migration because there was a difference of opinion in regards to the exact year in which the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was born and the year he was commissioned as a prophet. And the reason why they did not start it from the year in which the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, passed away, because this had an element of grief and sorrow for the Muslims due to the Holy Prophet's demise. Hence, the companions all agreed to start from the year of migration. The companions started the year from the month of Muharram instead of Rabi'ul Awwal, because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had decided to migrate in the month of Muharram. The Bayt Akbasaniya had taken place in the month of Zulhijjah, and this was what eventually led to the migration. Thus, the first lunar month which appeared after the Bayt-i Aqbasaniya and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, having decided to migrate was the month of Muharram and therefore it was deemed appropriate to begin the year with Muharram. Alama ibn Hajar states that to start the Islamic calendar from the month of Muharram was the strongest argument in his view. There are various opinions in relation to when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, arrived in Medina. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was stopped at different locations on the way and arrived close to Medina in 12 Rabi'ul Awwal in 14 Nabwi and 20th September 622 AD. According to some historians, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, arrived in 8 Rabi'ul Awwal and there are some who state that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, left in the month of Safar and arrived in Rabi'ul Awwal. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, left Makkah on the 1st of Rabi'ul Awwal and arrived in Medina on 12th Rabi'ul Awwal. There are also various narrations in regards to when the Hijri calendar was established. According to some, it was in 16 Hijri, but we also find mention of 17, 18 and 21 Hijri as well. In any case, most of the people agree that the calendar was established during the era of Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu. According to most historians, Abdul Malik bin Marwan introduced the first Islamic coin. Some of the historians of Medina have stated that the first Islamic coins were introduced in the era of Hazrat Umar anhu. They would have the words Alhamdulillah, all praise belongs to Allah inscribed on them. And others had Muhammad the Messenger of Allah and there is none worthy of worship except Allah who is one. However, they did not completely discard the coins used from the era of the Persian rulers. According to a research, the first Islamic coins were introduced in 17 Hijri in Damascus during the era of Hazrat Umar but they would contain the image of the Byzantine kings and Latin inscription on them. 
And according to another narration, it was in 28 Hijri during the era of Hazrat Usman anhu that a purely Islamic coin was used. Initially, in the Persian lands, the original coins were used and they would have the image of the Persian kings on them, but the words in the name of Allah, i.e. Bismillah, would be inscribed on them in Kufic script. Then, with regards to the projects started by Hazrat Umar anhu, which are known as Avaliyat Faruqi, Alama Shibli Nomani writes in his book, Al Farooq, that all the various projects that were started for the first time by Hazrat Umar anhu have all been listed by the historians and are known as Avaliyat. In other words, they were initiated by Hazrat Umar anhu, and they are as follows Hazrat Umar established the Batul Mal, a treasury. Number two, he established courts and appointed judges. Number three, he established the system of recording the dates and years, which continues even till today. Number four, he assigned the title of Amir al-Mu'mineen, a leader of the faithful for the Khalifa of the time. Number five, he established an official department for the army. Six, he fixed salaries for the volunteers. Seven, he established an official department for the treasury. Number eight, he established a system of measuring and surveying the lands. Number 9, he conducted a census. Number 10, he started the system of canals. Number 11, he inhabited the various cities such as Kufa, Basra, Jazira, Fustat, Musul, etc. Number 12, he divided the conquered lands into various provinces. Number 13, he established the system of Ashur, a tax at the rate of 110. Ashur was initiated by Hazrat Umar and it came about when the Muslims would travel to non-Muslim lands for trade and they would be charged a tax at the rate of 110 which was the rate that was set there. Hazrat Abu Musa Ashri informed Hazrat Umar anhu of this and Hazrat Umar anhu then instructed that those traders who would come to the Muslim lands should also be charged tax at the rate of 110. Number 14, the tax was fixed on whatever was produced from the rivers and tax collectors were appointed for this. Number 15, he gave permission for those traders who belonged to a country with whom the Muslims did not have any treaty with to enter the Muslim lands and engage in trade. Number 16, he established a system of prisons. Number 17, he initiated the punishment of Durra, a form of cane. Number 18, he established the practice of doing rounds in the night and assessing the conditions and circumstances of the public. Number 19, he established the system of policing. Number 20, he established various army barracks. Number 21, he distinguished between the Asil and Mujannis breed of horses, which was not previously done in the Arab land. 22, he started a system of reporting. 23, he built rest houses for those travelling from Mecca to Medina. 24, he established allowances for the orphans. 25, he built guest houses in various cities. 26, he established a rule that an Arab cannot be made a slave, even if he is a disbeliever. Number 27, he established allowances for those Christians and Jews who were facing impoverished circumstances. 28, he established offices. 29, he assigned salaries to the teachers in schools. Number 30, he insisted that Hazrat Abu Bakr should start to compile the various manuscripts of the Holy Quran in its correct order, as taught by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And he completed this task under his supervision. 31. He established the rule of Qiyas, i.e. the deduction of legal prescriptions from the Qur'an and Sunnah by analogical reasoning. 32. He established the system of all, which was to include certain people into the share of inheritance. 33. He established the Tarabi prayer to be performed in congregation. And 34. He considered giving three divorces at once as talaq i.e. complete separation. 
However, he did this as a punishment for those who engaged in this practice. 35. He instituted 80 lashes for indulgence in alcohol. 36. He prescribed zakat on horses used for trade. 37. He instated zakat upon the Christians of Banu Salab instead of jizya. 38. He initiated the system of devoted service. 39. He brought everyone to a consensus regarding the saying of takbir four times during the funeral prayer. Generally, the prescribed way is saying three takbir, or four if one counts the first until the last before saying salam. There are in fact four takbirs, and the same is done today. 40. He outlined guidance in relation to delivering lectures or discourse in mosques. And with his permission, Tamim Dari delivered the discourse in accordance to this, and this was the first lecture of its kind in Islam. 41. Salaries were prescribed for imams and muazzins. 42. He arranged for there to be light in the mosques at night. 43. He ordained a punishment for publicly ridiculing others through writing and literature. 44. He prohibited the mention of women's names in romantic poems, which was an ancient custom in Arabia. Alama Shibli writes that aside from these, there are many other things that were initiated by Hazrat Umar but he has not mentioned them as the list would become too long. The accounts of Hazrat Umar will continue to be mentioned in the future sermons, inshallah. At this time, I wish to mention some deceased members, and after the Friday prayer, I will also lead the funeral prayers in absentia. The first mention is of respected Sarpito Hadi Saswaya Sahib of Indonesia, who passed away last month at the age of 79. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. He performed the bath at the age of 21, and thereafter he remained extremely steadfast. He is survived by his wife and eight children, and one of his sons is currently serving as a missionary. The deceased served as the president of the local community on several occasions. He also served as a Qazi, a judge in Darul Qaza, Indonesia. He had a keen interest in Tabligh and would actively carry out Tabligh. No matter the circumstances, his passion for Tabligh never subsided. His son, Arwan Habibullah, who is a missionary, says that on several occasions it so happened that he would leave his motorcycle at someone's home and would travel many kilometers by foot for the purpose of Tabligh and he would have to cross rivers and rocks in order to reach other villages, thus making the journeys very difficult. My father was a hard-working man, and when he was working as a teacher, he requested the school's principal to be allotted four days for teaching. In other words, whatever classes there were for school should be completed in four days, and that he be given leave on the rest of the days so that he could have more time for tabligh. Upon finishing from school on Thursday, he would go straight for tabligh and would return home on Sunday evening, or sometimes even on Monday morning. Misharat Ahmad Sahib, who is a missionary, writes that 10 local jamaats of the community in Wanasoba region of central Java were established through him. And no matter the circumstances, he made sure to offer the Hajjad prayers. He met people of all backgrounds with great respect and kindness. Once he said that I wish to continue the work of the Bleak until my final days, this is the key to my happiness and health. Ahmed Hidayat Saib, who is a missionary, says the deceased was a very courageous preacher. He never felt afraid when he received threats from opponents and would firmly stand up to them. 
May Allah the Almighty treat him with forgiveness, bestow his mercy upon him and elevate his station. The next mention is of Chaudhary Bashir Ahmad Bhakti Sahib, son of Allah Dad Sahib Guru from the district of Nankana Sahib. He passed away last month at the age of 92. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. His son is Muhammad Afzal Bhakti Sahib who is a missionary in Tanzania. He says that he was a born Ahmadi, he was regular in prayers and fasting and he was equitable and eloquent in speech. He had a profound love for Ahmadiyyat and Khilafat. He began attending the Jalsa Salanas in Qadiyan from a young age. In his village, people greatly feared those who would be involved in the practice of charms and amulets to ward off evil, as this is quite common in our countries. And so he would tell them that there is no reason to fear such people, for they cannot cause you any harm against the will of Allah the Almighty. However, the people from the village would respond to him saying that you are Ahmadi and you don't believe in these things. That's why they cannot harm you, but we fear them. In 1953, when disorders began, the opponents of Ahmadiyyat held riots in our area in which they planned to burn the homes of Ahmadis. Some people went to the neighbouring village where high-ranking members of his family resided who had great influence but were not Ahmadis and asked them to advise their relatives who lived in that village where Ahmadis resided to leave because they intended to set fire there the next day. Alternatively, they should renounce Ahmadiyyat otherwise the outcome would not be good for them. And so his relatives tried to advise him and said that he should temporarily renounce Ahmadiyyat and could re-enter his faith after the riot had left. But upon this, he stated that don't worry, we have accepted Ahmadiyyat after great thought and consideration, and we will not be harmed in any way. We can be sacrificed for the sake of Ahmadiyyat, but we cannot even fathom to step back from our faith even for a minute. Following this, he told them that if they were unable to do anything, then that was fine, for their trust was in Allah the Almighty alone. And Allah the Almighty arranged for it to be such that the riots stopped some distance away and scattered as they did not have the courage to proceed to their village. He leaves behind two daughters and five sons. One of his sons, respected Afsal Bhatti Sahib, is a missionary of the community serving in Tanzania. Due to being in the field of duty, he was unable to partake in the funeral and burial. May Allah the Almighty elevate the station of the deceased and enable his progeny to carry out his virtuous qualities. And may Allah the Almighty grant patience and forbearance to the deceased son who could not be there. The next mention is of Hamidullah Khadim Mali Sahib, son of Chaudhary Allah Rakha Mali Sahib from Darun Nasr Gharbi Rabwa. He passed away at the age of 82. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong, and to him shall we return. He was the grandson of Chaudhary Allah Bakhsh Sahib, the companion of the promised Messiah alayhi salatu wasalam, and the father of Nasrullah Mali Sahib Shaheed, a missionary of the community. The deceased was regular in prayers and fasting, simple, honourable, caring for the poor, and a sincere and loyal Ahmadi. During his employment, he stood firm in the face of opposition and countered it with great bravery. One of his sons is a life devotee in Rabwa and is currently serving in the Tide Heart Institute. May Allah the Almighty treat him with forgiveness and bestow his mercy. The next mention is of Muhammad Ali Khan Sahib of Peshawar, who is the son of Sharifullah Khan Sahib. He passed away according to the decree of Allah at the age of 89. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. 
By the grace of Allah the Almighty, he had devoted one-eighth of his wealth as a Musi. He is survived by three daughters and seven sons. One of her daughters is Salima Saiba, wife of Burhan Saib, who resides here in Islamabad. She writes that their family were initially non Ahmadi, and then in 1954, her father, Muhammad Ali Khan Saib, took birth at the hand of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih II and remained attached to the community and to Khilafat throughout his life. Her father displayed great honour for his faith and had a deep bond with the community. Her father performed that in 1954 and prior to which he was a non-Ahmadi. But afterwards he had the opportunity of serving the community. He was the district guide for Qudamul Ahmadiyya as well as Secretary Vasaya, Secretary Talimul, Quran and served in various other posts as well. He intently studied the books of the Promised Messiah alayhi salatu wasalam. He had profound love for the Holy Quran and she always saw him reciting the Holy Quran. He had also memorized a significant portion of the Quran. He was devoted to worship was very virtuous, hospitable and honest and straightforward person. He constantly recited the Rood Sharif, i.e. invoking salutations upon the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He would also help others financially. Once one of his non-Ahmadiyya relatives said to him that if he left Ahmadiyya, he would be ready to completely sacrifice himself for him. She says that her father responded to him by saying that what need do I have for your sacrifice when I myself have already been sacrificed? Now you ought to listen to me and accept the promised Messiah for he who was to come has arrived, so reform yourselves by accepting him. But in any case, that relative did not pay any heed, and eventually all of his relatives left him. Yet day by day, the deceased continued to increase in his connection with the community. May Allah the Almighty treat him with forgiveness, bestow his mercy, and elevate his station. The next mention is of Sahib Zada Mahdi Latif Sahib of Maryland, USA, who passed away at the age of 87. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Sahib Zada Mehdi Latif Sahib was the grandson of Hazrat Sahib Zada Abdul Latif Shaheed Sahib and the son of the late Sahib Zada Muhammad Tayyib Latif Sahib. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, the late Sahib Zada Mehdi Latif Sahib was a Musi. He had extensively studied the books of the Promised Messiah. He was regular in offering the five daily prayers as well as the Tahajjud prayers. He had great love for Khilafat. He was very humble and of simple nature and he had a passion for tabligh and would always advise others to take part in tabligh. May Allah the Almighty grant him his forgiveness and bestow his mercy upon him and elevate his station. The next mention is of Fazan Ahmed Samir, son of Shahzad Akbar Sahib. Shahzad Akbar Sahib is a worker of the private secretary office in Ribwa and his son passed away due to COVID-19 at the age of 16, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. He was a very intelligent, quiet and honourable child. He was part of the Vakfinur scheme. He focused on his studies and would not involve himself in unnecessary activities. In fact, he did not even participate that much in sports. He was extremely well behaved. And aside from school, he would spend most of his time at home May Allah the Almighty grant patience to the parents of the deceased. His maternal grandfather, Khwaja Abdul Shakur Sahib, has also served the community for a long time. May Allah the Almighty grant him his forgiveness and elevate his station.